0: Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me this week. This is Amos and Obadiah, again, two of the small prophets. We call them small prophets because their books are short, but these were also prophets that were toward the end of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. We don't have a lot of information specifically about Obadiah, and a little bit more about Amos because he tells about it in his book, about his calling by the Lord in chapter 7. But let's just look at what they're saying. I have something that I'm really excited to talk about today at the end of a quick review of these books. Amos was a herdsman, a shepherd. So he lived kind of in the country, but is called by God to go and preach to the city, to the centers of the population. Again, saying basically that, you know, they must needs repent or destruction was coming. He says in chapter one, you know, that, God will not turn away the punishment, that there will be punishments to to both the unrighteous and rebellious Israelites, but also to those who injure them, which is, I think, an important point. This reminds us of Mormon, chapter 4, verse 5, but behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished, for it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. So let's be clear about this. God does not ever inspire wickedness, never, because he loves us. So he only invites us to do good. And everything that he does in direct interaction with us is about inviting us to be saved through Christ, to come into Christ and be saved. Nevertheless, because he has given us this great gift of agency, which is the only thing that makes this earth meaningful, because we ultimately get what we want, And everybody gets what they want. Referring to Alma 29 for a moment here where Alma says, I know that God granteth unto men according to their desires. So we do get what we want because of this tremendous gift that God has given us of agency. We can't blame anybody else for where we end up because we are choosing our glory. We are choosing it in every thought, word, deed, action, response. We are choosing who we're going to be, who we are becoming. At any rate, God doesn't inspire wickedness, but he uses the bad choices of some of his children to accomplish some of his purposes. And because he has perfect knowledge of all things and all things are present unto him, he is not surprised. So the plan can be perfectly engineered so that yes, by the wicked are the wicked punished. Not because God ordains anybody to be wicked or to destroy anybody else. But knowing that they will, it ends up accomplishing his purposes because of his incredible engineering. And this is kind of what Amos is saying, that the Lord will hold responsible those who come against Israel, even though Israel was destroyed because, or scattered ultimately, but some of them destroyed, some of them brought into captivity, and the rest scattered in the great diaspora. And that this is accomplished through the agency that people have. Now, I just want to say that this never exonerates the wicked who may end up accomplishing something that is necessary in God's plan. Nevertheless, they're culpable because they make the choice to be so wicked that they would hurt or injure or destroy another group or another person. And maybe you've heard this. I know I've mentioned this a long time ago that sometimes we go too far and we say that, well, because the Lord came Jesus Christ came to die as a sacrifice for sin and to conquer death and hell, that then maybe Judas is off the hook for what he did in his betrayal of Christ to the Pharisees because it had to happen. No, he's not off the hook. Nobody's off the hook. We are accountable for our own actions. But yes, God knew that Judas would betray Christ. So that was set up in a way that perfectly is engineered in order to accomplish the goal of that atoning sacrifice. But that doesn't mean Judas is off the hook. (laughs) The wicked are still wicked. Or sometimes I put it this way, that just because God can make lemonade out of lemons, which is what he does, does not mean the lemons aren't sour. It doesn't mean they're not bitter in the first place and that people who actually generate some of those lemons of their own free will and choice are going to be accountable for doing that. You know, the the Nazis did accomplish a beginning of the gathering of the Jews back to the homeland of Israel. And that was prophesied from ancient times that that gathering would begin for the Jews to go back to their homeland. Nevertheless, the Nazis are not off the hook for the evil that they did just because God used them as instruments because of their wicked choices to accomplish one of his positive goals and, and the prophecies that had been given. Okay, just just a point here, all right? God makes lemonade out of lemons, but it doesn't mean the lemons aren't soured. And Amos is saying that, basically, that the wicked are not off the hook just because Judah required some chastening or the consequences had come unto Israel for their long-time rebellion against God. Of course, we want to jump to chapter 3, verse 7. This is former scripture mastery in, in seminary, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Powerful idea here expressed in the third chapter of Amos. Worth thinking about, worth remembering, worth memorizing. It's an easy verse to memorize, but the Lord reveals his will to his prophets. He does not keep things in secret. He wants us to know. What his will is. He wants us to know the plan. He wants us to know the consequences of righteousness, the consequences of sin and rebellion. And he reveals these things to our prophets so that our prophets can, seeing afar off, because of this seership, can tell us the will of the Lord, can show us the path, can help protect us from error or worldly destruction, as well as to show us the way to Christ. So we see this. We see this sort of diminishment of prophets in our day, right? I mean, there's so much challenge to the prophecies. days. Oh, maybe Brigham Young was a racist. John Taylor, all those guys must have been racist up to President Kimball. This is a diminishment of God's connection with his prophets. And I think it's very dangerous for us to, to dismiss it as like, well, God couldn't get through to his prophets. Amos is making it pretty clear. God gets through to his prophets. He revealeth his will unto his servants, the prophets. So I think it's important to honor and respect that relationship between God and his prophets and not to let a lack of complete understanding water that down. I mean, because what's the outcome? Well, you know, maybe Russell Nelson doesn't know all the things that he's talking about or, you know, President Oaks or President Iring or any of the rest of them. Maybe they're, maybe they're also kind of missing some things. I mean, that's the logical extension and disaster ensues when we stop listening to prophets. So nice clarification in that old scripture mastery verse. Chapter four, kind of poetic here, the way the Lord talks about how he has worked with the house of Israel. Just gonna read a few verses. Verse six, I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Cleanness of teeth means there wasn't any food to eat. So your teeth didn't get dirty and the want of bread in all your places. So there was famine that came to the house of Israel. And then what's the point here? Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Like you wouldn't listen to the prophets, but then I sent troubles and plagues and calamities. You still didn't listen. Verse seven, also I have withholden the rain from you. But then following verse eight, so two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Verse 9, I've smitten you with blasting and mildew. When your garden and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Those are plagues, but like the locusts or whatever, right? Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Remember the plagues of Egypt. I have sent these, not because I hate you, not because I'm a mean God, because I was trying to get your attention. You would not listen to me. And I needed to. to, to get through to you because I wanted you to have a chance to repent. So after the testimony of prophets comes the testimony of earthquakes or plagues or troubles. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Again in verse 11, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And here we are in our latter day. And look what's happening. Tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, droughts, challenges to our food supply, challenges to the acquisition of fertilizer and, and fuel reserves. And this is sometimes imposed by bad policy. Nevertheless, these things are troubles. They are troubles. They are challenges to us continuing to live in a in a prosperous circumstance. And why? Well, God has told us after the testimony of prophets comes the testimony of these calamities. Why? So you will return unto me, so that I can get your attention. This is so important because you know we have this real arrogance about us these days in our modern postmodern world where we we celebrate individualism and we're going to talk more about this in a moment, but we celebrate The self, we celebrate the accomplishments of mankind, and we act like mine own arm hath done that. I mentioned this before, but when my kids were growing up and there were natural disasters back then as well, I would take a moment and talk to the kids about this. And I say, You know, we are always sad when people are hurt by these things, but it's a reminder that we are not in charge of this planet. The whole world is in God's hands. He is the one who created the world. He set the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens, created the tides, created photosynthesis so that chlorophyll, the, the root of life, could be available to us. He created our bodies with those amazing physiological miracles of the eye, the hand, the nervous system, the brain, the circulatory system, the muscles and the skeletal system, all of these things. Are created by a divine and intelligent Creator who has all power, but we have vaunted ourselves against God and felt that you know we're in charge of the planet. So when there's climate change, we have to fix it, as if we can. I've talked about this before. This is our modern Tower of Babel, where now we think we can manage this planet. There's no acknowledgement. There's no humility in that. That. All of this comes from God. And if we want the planet to continue with the chance for us to prosper, we need to humble ourselves and go to the creator and do it his way. And as I've lamented in the past, there are not very many people who are saying this, but there are some. I was mentioning this to one of my daughters the other day, and she sent me some Instagram things. I'm not on social media. But... She sent me some Instagram people who are saying that. They're saying, return to God, return to the Bible. I mentioned Jason Whitlock, a former sports columnist, who now has become a social political commentator, who says we need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to God. So there are some voices in our day saying this. And of course, we get this all the time. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ, how blessed are we that we do have prophets, seers, and revelators and we have a telecommunication system at this time that allows us to partake of their words liberally, on our phones, on our computers, you know, in podcasts, in audio, in firesides that are broadcast worldwide. All kinds of wonderful ways that we can imbibe of the word of the word of the Lord through His leaders and prophets, and we can respond if we choose. And be protected through the troubles of the world. If the the country doesn't return, if the world doesn't return, which we know it won't because we read the Book of Mormon, we know how this ends, (laughs) there won't be a grassroots resurgence of righteousness. There will be a people who become a Zion people, and then Christ will return when we are ready as a Zion people. And then there will be a destruction of the wicked. And there will be many wicked. We've talked about this last year in the DNC section 112, within mine own house shall it be kin. Because the wheat grow with the tares. And even within the church, there are some who will be Zion and some who will not be. And the destruction of the wicked, as it says in section 112, from mine own house shall it go forth. So that God, not being a hypocrite, will first clean house and then go out there and destroy the rest of the wicked. So that that is how this will come. It won't come because the world becomes righteous and returns to God wholesale or in a broad sense, but we can do that because we have agency, we have choice, and we can follow the words of the prophet, the admonitions of ancient and modern prophets for us to come to God, to come to Christ, and be saved by covenant. And again, this is warming up to to what we want to talk about today. Okay, chapter 5, the theme of chapter 5 in Amos is to seek the Lord. Verse 4, for thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Verse 6, seek the Lord, and ye shall live. This is a nice verse. Verse 8, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning. Isn't that beautiful poetry talking about how Christ has conquered death? That he turneth the shadow of death into the morning. And maketh the day dark with night that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So beautiful. And then I want to mention this too in verse 11, for as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of human stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. In other words, A part of Zion is always caring for the poor, a voluntary humbling of ourselves in that the poor are exalted in that the rich are made low, but not because some outside pressure or force or governmental authority redistributes wealth, but because those who prosper voluntarily voluntarily give to the poor, voluntarily help to elevate others, not by compulsion, which is always Satan's way, but by voluntarily seeking out our neighbors to help others. You know, President Oaks gave a great speech about that in October, right, about all the efforts that the church makes to help the disadvantaged in the world. And it was lovely that he talked about other churches or other religions, other organizations, religious and secular, that try to elevate the poor, that try to alleviate burdens and troubles. And it's always wonderful to see those things and from wherever they come, that the spirit of the Lord is working upon righteous hearts and receptive hearts to take care of the poor and and those that are disadvantaged. Verse 14, we're still in chapter five of Amos. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts shall be with you. Verse 15, hate the evil and love the good. We've talked about that. It's not enough to love the good. We must hate the evil and reject it. More coming on that. Chapter 6, and this is what we're going to really land on. Woe to them. Right here at the beginning, verse 1, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Boy, there's a lot to say there. And this is an echo from 2 Nephi 28, right? That says you know, that in that last day that people will say, all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth. He's warning against that. Don't go there. Don't think that everything's right with the world, even amongst God's people. Now, he's talking about God's people and God's church. He's not talking about the true Zion that will be established in righteousness and purity. But he's talking about, you know, the church. And he's saying, don't be deceived into thinking that we're fine. We're good enough. We're all done. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Now, let me also give the warning that that doesn't mean that we should be terrified. That is not God's way. He has not given us the spirit of fear. It's from 2 Timothy, right? It is not the spirit of fear. That's not his way either. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God isn't asking us to be terrified. That is not... The Spirit of the Lord, but He wants us to have a sound mind, and if we are paying attention, we're not going to think all is well in Zion. (laughs) All will be well, but not now. Christ is coming to make all things right, and at that point we will sing as in the beautiful "Come, Coming Saints" hymn, "All is well." Now we do it in an anticipatory fashion, and also recognizing that God can give us individual peace amidst the storm. We don't have to be waiting for the second coming in order for us to have that peace within, but that's different from complacency. And that's the warning here that Amos is giving and second Nephi is giving, but it's not about being complacent and thinking we're all fine. We're good enough. We're done. We don't have to struggle more to create that Zion life and to continue to choose glory. And then chapter seven is the place where Amos talks about how he was called and that he is called to open his mouth, that he was a shepherd. Verse 14, partway through, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The next verse, 15, And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. And I hope you are all also understanding that many of these prophets were contemporaries. So we can, we can kind of check the chronology if we want to, but we find that especially at the end of the house of Israel, meaning, you know, prior to the northern kingdom being taken captive by Assyria, and prior to then the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and taking many captive, and from that time on, the Jews were a subject nation, and the scattering that was to come, that there were many prophets that came. We t- we've talked about how Jeremiah and Lehi were clearly contemporaries in the last days of Jerusalem. But Amos and Obadiah and many of these others also overlapped in their ministries because God sent many prophets. And we know that from the Book of Mormon as well, that it talks about Lehi being amongst the prophets that were trying to warn the house of Judah and the kingdom of Judah of the destruction to come if they would not repent. So we will come back to that or to the ease and Zion in a moment, but let's just finish a little bit here of our review of Amos in chapter 8, He talks about the downfall of Israel, and then he prophesies about the apostasy. Going all the way to verse 11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Verse 12, And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. And that was the darkness that came to the world because of the rejection of the Word of God by his people. So we go into the period of the great apostasy that happens after Christ's ministry on the earth, the loss of priesthood power. Of course, the Jews lost it before then. They had a chance again when Christ ministered amongst them. And some did accept the gospel, but then when the apostles were killed... We enter the great apostasy, and people looked to and fro, but could not find it until the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, the heading says, Israel shall be sifted among all nations. And that certainly is true in the scattering, the diaspora of Israel throughout all nations. In the last days, there will be a gathering again into their own land, and it shall become productive. So the great promise that God will not forget Israel. Verse 8 Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. This is the Abrahamic covenant that we've talked about. For lo, I will command, this is verse 9, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. In other words, he's not going to lose Israel Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. But in the last day, last two verses of the book of Amos 14 and 15, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. What he's saying there is I'll reverse the captivity of my people. And in the footnote, it talks about the gathering, right? I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. All those places that were destroyed, by their adversaries, will be built up again. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Last verse 15, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Beautiful promises made to God's covenant people. That wonderful covenant relationship, that loving kindness, said the mercy that God shows through the covenant, powerful, powerful love that will come again to fulfill these promises. Well, has never departed. The love has never departed, but there are requirements if we want to receive all the blessings of that loving kindness. We need to humble ourselves and come to Christ in the way that he has ordained by covenant. This book of Obadiah, just one chapter Obadiah prophesies the downfall of Edom. And maybe you remember that the Edomites are originally coming from Esau. They're descendants of Esau. Remember, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, but he was not interested in living the covenant. So he loses the birthright, even though he was the elder of the twins, and Jacob was the younger of the twins. So um, Esau, you remember this, he was the hairy one, and Jacob, you know, gets the blessing from his father, Isaac, who has gone blind by then. But really, again, you can't steal a birthright. Esau was not worthy of it. He didn't really want it for the right reasons or in the right way. So Jacob did and he receives the birthright and they reconcile at the end of their lives, remember, which is beautiful. But Esau is the father of the Edomites and the Edomites, so they're connected. They're cousins basically to the Israelites. And yet they also participate in the destruction of the kingdom of Judah. And God, you know, tells them off for it through the prophet Obadiah and says, this is not okay. Verse 12, thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So this is an important point as well. God is just saying, don't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked ever and don't participate in it, but don't even rejoice in it. We should have compassion. If we're becoming like God, we don't look upon people who have made wicked decisions or done wicked things with hatred or, or condemnation. We, we may condemn the behaviors that they have done, and we may need to take steps to protect ourselves from wicked people, healthy boundaries, etc. But we do not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. That is not God's way. It is not the way of the Christian life. And then Obadiah gives us this wonderful concept in verse 17. And then the last verse of Obadiah, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness in the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Verse 21, the last one of Obadiah and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So what is a savior on Mount Zion? And we know through revelation that that, that concept specifically applies to those who do family history and temple work. That it is in the manner of the Savior who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not resurrect ourselves. We could not deliver ourselves from sin without a Savior. Christ was our Savior because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in doing temple work, family history and temple work, we are doing for others what they cannot do for themselves redeeming the dead. This is a really important part of the gathering has been taught again and again. Perfect the saints, preach the gospel, and redeem the dead. And then they remind us that part of perfecting the saints and becoming Zion is to also take care of the poor and needy. But this is the gathering of Israel that goes on both sides of the veil, goes on and takes place on both sides of the veil. So becoming a savior on Mount Zion is a precious thing. Some of us have that mentioned in our patriarchal blessings. And whether or not It specifically says that in our patriarchal blessings, all of us are invited to participate in this amazing work. And there is a special spirit about family history and temple work. Many of us have felt that as we participate in the temple or in doing family history, that there is this great joy that can come. Elder Bednar several years ago invited our youth to participate so that they can experience that special spirit of Elijah that can bless their lives and help to tie them to the gathering of Israel and help them understand how great this work is. Anyway, wonderful stuff. Okay, let us talk about something having to do with not being at ease in Zion. And forgive me, I mean, I do go off on my tangents, right? And I appreciate that, that you are patient with that. Something's been on my mind quite a bit lately. It seems like within like a two week period, I had like five different parents, mostly mothers, that I was talking to in different settings or even that my daughters told me about some of their friends that have said this as well, that they struggle with children who are not complying with the standards of modesty or dress or language and media, all those other things that were mentioned in the first strength of youth booklet. And, Of course, we had this significant change that was made that Elder Uchtdorf announced in our last conference, October 2022, where he talked about how they're changing that. And now it is going to be more about the kids trying to understand how their behavior and the choices they make behaviorally and in the way that they keep or do not keep standards, that that will be hopefully a decision that they make prayerfully, coming to the Lord and saying, is this going to bring me closer to you or further away Anyway, I've heard many people already express interesting responses to that, and I'm sure you have as well. Some have immediately said, see, it doesn't matter anymore, and now we have young people talking about going and getting a CTR tattoo or multiple piercings in there if they haven't done it already. You know, now they don't have to worry so much and nobody is going to judge them or whatever. Well, guess what? They will be judged as all of us will according to our choices, and have they brought us closer to the Lord or further away. Now, this has been on my mind a lot because I hear these parents say, we've taught our children, but they're not listening. Like maybe they're good kids. And many of them say that they are good kids. They don't drink or smoke or sleep around. Nevertheless, they you know, insist on tight, short prom dresses or bikinis or extra piercings. And they don't seem to care that the parents are trying to warn them against those things. And then some of the parents will say, You know, I have to pick my battles. I don't want to fight with them all the time. So, you know, I don't insist and I don't know what to do about it because I would never have done that. And we've always taught them not to, but they're doing it anyway. So it becomes this challenge that many parents are worried about. I had a a mother ask me the other day, she said, when did it stop mattering? She said, when I grew up, she said, we always wore one piece swimsuits and we were, we stood out that way a little bit from our friends, but that was something we willingly did to be obedient to the standards of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a mark of our obedience and distinction as a peculiar people. And she says, now it seems like it doesn't matter. And it was interesting. Because she said, I don't even know who to talk to about this because the other mothers, some of them don't seem to matter. Or they're buying them these dresses or swimsuits or taking them. Anyway, it's, it's this feeling of kind of helplessness that we're not sure what to do about it. And we don't want to fight with our kids all the time. But why are they not getting this? One of my daughters-in-law, I was kind of chatting with about this, and she said, yeah, it's like they don't realize that bikinis were always available. <laughs> she said, I'd like these young women and young men to, to realize that we always had these choices, but we chose not to wear those, you know, maybe in, a, in our own generations. We made, or maybe more of us at least, made the choice to avoid doing those things that now it seems... Many do, even when they consider themselves members of the church and active members of the church and involved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So part of where my thinking went was Zion, because this is a preparatory time to the second coming of Christ. And again, as we've talked about continually, there must be a Zion people to receive Christ. We have to have enough of us become righteous at the level of a Zion people. We have to choose glory to the level of being able to be eligible for Zion and being eligible for the presence of the Lord. There must be Zion coming from beneath and Zion descending from above, the city of Enoch and Salem, when the Savior comes. And I've read quotes in the past, Orson Pratt and John Pontius and others who have said that, you know, until there is a Zion people, Christ will not come. So this is not you know, an obscure doctrine. It's actually discussed in many places. So how are these youth going to become a part of Zion? I mean, the standards haven't changed. Even if we don't put them in a booklet as a, as a to-do list or as particular boundaries, they haven't changed. You remember that John Groberg said a long time ago that the wearing of the garment, for instance, the way we wear the garment, the temple garment, is an outward sign of an inward commitment an outward sign of an inward commitment. We choose to wear it properly as instructed in the temples of the Lord. And as we declare, when we get our temple recommends, and then when we renew our temple recommends, that we are wearing the garment as instructed. This is part of the covenant. And yet we have people now in the world who are members of the church who are saying, well, it's an individual choice how you choose to wear the garment is your choice and your bishop has no business asking about your underwear. That's We're hearing this from members of the church who have followings and they seem to be instructing people that you don't have to do it the Lord's way. You can do it your way. And this is what I want to talk about because I think our children have been infected by this change in dogma that has come very subtly into our society. Actually, it's not even that subtle, but we haven't always known how to recognize it. So, Let me talk about this in broad strokes and then see if we can recognize the application and how we can help our children understand what they are being fed in terms of understanding that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ and contrary to a Zion people. We need young people in Zion too. And bless their hearts, there are some that are not pushing against the standards or thinking that now because it's not spelled out in a booklet that anything goes. And bless those young people who are still set upon the kingdom and they are choosing glory in their lives by making sacrifices to be different from the rest of the world, to become a peculiar treasure to the Lord, a peculiar people, a peculiar treasure, a royal priesthood. And this is happening if they choose to live at this higher, holier level instead of descending to the standards of the world. But too often we're seeing people Make that other choice and descending to blend in with the rest of the world as salt that has lost its savor, that has been mixed in with other elements. As we said, that's the only way salt can lose its savor. Salt is always salty, but it's no good if it's mixed in with dirt or mixed in with other elements. Then you can't use it to flavor your food. It needs to be separate in order to serve its purpose of providing savor. And if we blend in, and you can't tell any difference between the followers of Christ and the rest of the world at the prom, or in the movies that they watch, or the language they use, or the media that they employ, or the swimming suits that they wear, or how many piercings they have, then salt has lost its savor. That is the counterpoint of Zion. That's not choosing glory. That's choosing the world. And we live beneath our privilege and ultimately sell our birthright for a mess of pottage if that's what we choose. Now, Elder Bednar gave a great speech about the wedding garment in our last conference, October, 2022. Go back and review it and think about the temple garment. It applies to other things as well, of course, that great covenant with Christ as the bride to his bridegroom and the preparation for that. But there is very specific application to the wearing of the temple garment that we have this great privilege To have this protection, this covenant in our lives and to honor it. And instead, we're hearing from so many people that, oh, it's just your personal choice as to whether or not you comply with the way you've been instructed to wear the garment. So, okay, let's go back to like the broad strokes. What we have seen, and I could go really deep into how this happened, but I'm just going to kind of land on this. I've mentioned it before, I think in one podcast a while ago the difference between liberation theology and savior theology. Now, this is not a new distinction. This is Satan's way. He pulls this out every time. He pulled it out in the times of Noah and Sodom, Gomorrah and Nineveh. And anyway, all these places where there has been evil and civilizations destroyed. It's all through the Book of Mormon that we see this too in the teachings of the Antichrists. So what is liberation theology? What is savior theology? Let me take a minute here. Actually, even liberation theology is an entry in Wikipedia. That was interesting. So this is what it says in the first paragraph. Liberation theology is a Christian. That's interesting that they say Christian because it's actually contrary to a savior theology. And that's an interesting point. But notice that in the Book of Mormon, those antichrists were not, they were not anti-religion. They just had taken the savior out of their religion. They continued to have churches and synagogues but they took the savior out and that's what's happening here. So anyway, it's a Christian theological approach emphasizing the liberation of the oppressed. In certain contexts, it engages socioeconomic analyses with social concern for the poor and political liberation for oppressed peoples. In other contexts, it addresses other forms of inequality such as race or caste Now, they don't say it here, but honestly, this is Marxism. And it didn't originate with Karl Marx. It was in the Book of Mormon. It was in the Old Testament peoples. It's this rejection of Jesus Christ as Redeemer and Savior. Interestingly, there is no entry in Wikipedia for Savior theology. (laughs) So (laughs) that, that was interesting to me. But Savior theology is basically the doctrine of Christ And we know that the doctrine of Christ is taught in scripture. And specifically, we often refer to 2 Nephi chapter 30, 31, 32, that it reviews the doctrine of Christ. And what is the doctrine of Christ? It's taught in the plan that man is a fallen creature, that we fell from God's presence voluntarily in order to receive a body and to have the test of dealing with that body and and this mortality, if we would choose God or not. That's the test. And... That we require a savior because we are in a fallen state, we require a savior. And the conditions of salvation through Jesus Christ are that we humble ourselves, have faith in Christ, repent, meaning change, right? That we change from that fallen state, that mortal state of corruption, meaning that we have the natural man in us, the desires, appetites, and passions that can pull us away from obedience to God's commandments. This is why King Benjamin, in that well-known scripture, Mosiah 319, said that the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam, that fallen state that put us into a world that is carnal, sensual, and devilish, and where we have appetites within the flesh. And as Christ said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why? Because of those appetites. And if we don't manage the appetites and bring them into conformity with commandments that come from God, then the natural man destroys us because we become carnal, sensual, and devilish, making ourselves a God in our own image, which is the image of the world, where we do whatever we want, and we deny Christ's authority to tell us what to do. But the doctrine of Christ is different. The doctrine of Christ, as I've started to say, is that we humble ourselves, have faith in Christ, repent of our sins. We change who we are. Not because we are terrible people, but because we are in a fallen world and that we have to learn how to handle the flesh and bring it into conformity with God. And then through that path, which is his way, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and through covenant, that we can be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, right? That is the path of salvation, is obedience putting off the natural man, as King Benjamin says, becoming a saint through the atonement of Jesus Christ, submissive, meek, patient, humble, full of love, willing to submit to all things that the Father seeth fit to inflict upon him, etc. That is the path of salvation. That is the doctrine of Christ. That is Savior theology. And it is completely different from liberation theology. So let's go further with his idea of liberation theology because you know, we have to answer this question as to why we're having so much difficulty with some of our youth wanting to voluntarily comply with the requirements of the covenant. And the answer really is expressive individualism, which is a part of liberation theology that elevates the self, that elevates who I am in my natural man. Now, I found an article I really liked, and I'm going to read quite a bit of it, so bear with me. This was by a man, not a member of our faith, but he is a Protestant. I think he's associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. The man, Trevin Wax, wrote this article in October of 2018. It's called, Why is Expressive Individualism a Challenge for the Church? Trevin Wax is the Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. Which I had never heard of before, but the North American Mission Board is an organization that tries to spread the gospel and teach Jesus Christ. And he's also a visiting professor at Cedarville University. So, quoting from that article, the first reason why expressive individualism poses a challenge is that we've been commissioned to proclaim a message that is radically God centered. The gospel challenges the me with I am speaking of God as I am, right? The one, capital O-N-E, who created and sustains us. So there's a humility there. There's a hierarchy. That hierarchy is something that Marxism decries because anytime there's a hierarchy where one is above another, Marxism characterizes that as oppression, It characterizes it as oppressor and oppressed. Somebody has something that the rest don't have. So by definition, Marxism would say, and again, this is anti-Christ theology. It's not new with Karl Marx. It has always existed in the doctrine of Satan, which is anti-Christ, because it challenges the idea that God is superior to us, that we are his creatures, his children. And there is an implied hierarchy between parent and child. Okay, so jumping around here, but let me go back to the article. Expressive individualism would have us look deep into our hearts to discover our inner essence and express that to the world, as if that natural man's self somehow should be elevated and celebrated. But the gospel shows how the depths of our hearts are steeped in sin. Now, this is such an unpopular idea today, right? I mean, there is no sin in this world. And again, this is not a new concept. This has always been the antichrist dogma that, oh, you know, don't worry about the devil because there is none. There is no evil. What are we hearing now? That nothing is evil, it's all in your perception. And to condemn anything as sin is hateful. It's bigoted. It's narrow-minded to say that somebody is sinning. How dare you suggest that what somebody chooses to do with their own life is sinful. That's not politically correct. It's decried now as hate speech. So going on with the article, the gospel shows how the depths of our hearts are steeped in sin, meaning that we are fallen from God's presence, that taking on the body means that we have these desires and appetites and passions that if we allow as the natural man to take over, that we are enemies to God. The article says, it claims that what we need most is not expression. Speaking of the gospel, the gospel claims that what we need most is not expression, but redemption. That is savior theology. That's the doctrine of Christ, that we are fallen and we need redemption through Christ by being obedient, by harnessing the natural man, by coming to Christ in his way. The article continues, the world says we should look inward while the gospel says to look upward in an expressive individualistic society, that message is countercultural. Such instruction is easy to resist because looking up implies that something or someone stands outside and above us. Again, there's the hierarchy that immediately is attacked as oppressive because nobody has the right to tell you anything, right? Including God. That's the current liberation theology, that it's all about oppressor and oppressed. And you see how the church and the gospel itself becomes characterized in this liberation theology as oppressive, because it's telling us that God has a right to tell us how to live. And that is in complete contrast to the me centered expressive individualism. Going on, something that stands above us may exert some sort of authority or claim upon our lives. Yes, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Remember from the New Testament? We are not our own. We are bought with a price. We do have an obligation to God, our Father, who has given us everything. We are all unprofitable servants. But the best we can do is to be obedient. Even then we fall short of being ever square with God because of his great gifts and benevolence to us. Nevertheless, this idea here is to reject that anybody has a claim on us, including God. And like most good Westerners, we chafe against claims of moral authority. We push back against institutions that demand something from us. And we see this sometimes in our youth and adults of all ages as well. But we see this push against the church's requirements. That if you want to be temple worthy and qualify for Zion, if you want to choose glory, you need to wear the garment as instructed. Oh, no, they don't have a right to tell me to do that. They don't have a right to tell me not to dress immodestly, to wear tank tops all the time or short shorts or, or you know, bikinis or whatever, to take my shirt off if I'm a man whenever I want to, rather than try to stay in the garment as much as possible. Okay, going on. The rationale for this particular form of rebellion against God is that conforming to nature or to an outside standard seen in Christianity as obedience to God stifles the real me. To follow the ancient instructions of Scripture or to conform to a moral standard that comes from outside feels like a betrayal of my identity. That's what expressive individual teaches submitting myself to truth that comes from outside myself, that comes from God, from a higher authority, feels like I am abandoning the call to live my truth. We hear that all the time. Live your truth. And as I've said before, whenever they say things like, be true to yourself, they are always talking about the natural man self, which is an enemy to God. They're not talking about the divine child of God's self that is also a part of us, where if we live true to the divine potential that exists in us as children of God, we can become like him by obedience and conformity to the covenant. Not because I can do it my own way, but because I will do it his way. I'm not going to do me. I'm going to do Jesus. I'm going to become conformed to his image. And what was his image? Not my will, but thine. His was the ultimate acknowledgement of moral authority in his father. And he did the will of his father, not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. That is our path. If we want to have all that God wants to give us, it is doing it in the way he desires, not in our own individualistic way going on. And so the primary message of the church, one that confronts the me with the claims of God, feels wrong. And in our world, that's what's happening. These kids are like, no, it doesn't feel right for me to deny my nature or my desires, my appetites. The sociologist who wrote Habits of the Heart put it this way. We believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness of the individual. Now, this is false teaching. This is the liberation theology. Anything that would violate our right to think for ourselves, judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit, is not only morally wrong, it is sacrilegious. Again, they're not rejecting religion, they're changing religion into liberation theology of oppressor and oppressed. They're saying that anything that gets in the way of our right to think for ourselves, judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit, wear the garment the way we want to, or if we want to, you know, pierce whatever we want, tattoo whatever we want, You know, listen to whatever media, do all those things, whatever we want. That that is sacrilegious because it's denying my right to be myself. Not who I was meant to be, not who I have the potential for being, but who I am in my natural man, enemy to God state. Going on with this wrong idea, our highest and noblest aspirations, not only for ourselves, but for those we care about, for our society and the world are closely linked to our individualism. That is liberation theology. It's false. Contrary to the doctrine of Christ, it's antichrist. Because there's no need for change. There's no need for redemption. It's like, I'm good enough the way I am. Because I am divine myself. What happens to the church in this environment? Now, this is the original author speaking now. It's not that suddenly all the sanctuaries are emptied and the church gets rejected. Instead, the people who continue to attend church do so because they believe the church can help them find and express themselves. And this is what is happening in the Book of Mormon. They don't stop having sanctuaries or synagogues or churches. They still have church. But now it is about worshiping themselves, that expressive individualism. It's not about doing it God's way. It's about elevating the self to say, I can do it my way, my truth, my desires, my way. Religiosity doesn't disappear. It morphs into something adaptable. Something you embrace on your own terms. Remember, I've talked about this in the past, about how now we have churches that are kind of like, do whatever you want. You don't have to live the Ten Commandments, but Jesus loves you and you'll be saved. So come here and celebrate with us. But there are no requirements. Everybody's going to heaven without any requirement. Faith is no longer focused on reality or something true. It's a therapeutic choice intended to aid you in your pursuit of self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. See, I don't need a savior anymore in this thinking. I can be good enough myself without having to change. James Smith sums up Charles Taylor's description of why this outlook proves challenging for the church. Now in the age of authenticity, with its expressive individualistic outlook, we have a qualitative shift. The religious life or practice that I become part of must not only be my choice, but it must speak to me. It must make sense in terms of my spiritual development as I understand this. The expressive forges his or her own religion, his or her own personal Jesus. It becomes less and less rational, quote unquote, to accept any external constraints. I don't have to obey any set of moral codes. A new spiritual injunction arises quote, Let everyone follow his or her own path of spiritual inspiration. Don't be led off yours by the allegation that it doesn't fit with some orthodoxy. In other words, you can reject all demands of any institution because you have the right to set your own standards. Going on, in the expressivist framework, anything that gets in the way of self exaltation or self fulfillment is a problem. This means that any universal or binding ethic, like the Ten Commandments, morals that are absolute, truths that are transcendent, in our culture, they all fall down before the idol of the mighty me. God may still be present, but me is on the throne. God has been relegated, in the words of Mark Sayers, to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. Look at that now God is my servant and he is just massaging my ego. He's going to make me feel good about myself no matter what I do, which is completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And remember Ezra Taft Benson saying, you cannot do wrong and feel right. But now they want a God who makes them feel good about doing whatever they want. And they don't want anybody telling them, but that's not fit for the kingdom. That if you really want to be God's people, you need to adopt his way, his standards, his mode of behavior, talk, thought, media, dress, comportment, you know, the commandments that he has set, the way we We deal with sexuality, the way we deal with identity, that it is God's way that matters, not the world's and not your own natural man desire or inclination. It is God's standard that can exalt and save and help us fulfill our potential. Satan's the one who wants us to be miserable like himself, meaning I'm going to just do it my own way. Remember, King Benjamin also says in Mosiah that I cannot tell you all the ways wherein man can sin for there are divers ways and means. In other words, there are a million ways that the expressive individualist can screw up, We all can die on our own mountain, you know, where we just like, okay, well, this is what I want, and I'm not going to listen to God in this area because I can be myself. There are a million ways to destroy ourselves and our potential. There's one way to be saved, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we were designed with the potential to be like God, and the way to do that is a non-negotiable covenant path that requires submission to God's will. Not my will, but thine, as the Savior exemplified. Now, look at our youth. They're not saying that sometimes. Again, I don't mean to pick on the youth, but we do seem to have this generational issue. And I'm hearing it from a lot of parents that even good kids, I mean, quote unquote, good kids, and I don't mean that they don't have their good parts because bless them for not sleeping around or drinking or drugging. I mean, we're glad for that, but they still have altered their view of things to allow them to deviate from the standards of the Lord when they want to, because they're not accepting his authority over them. They're not allowing for like, no, man is in a fallen state. And the only way to get back is through a redeemer who is setting the terms and not terms because they're arbitrary and he just wants us to jump hoops, but because it is in pursuit of obedience that we become like Jesus Christ that he can ultimately sanctify us through the power of the Holy Ghost and make us new creatures that are celestial, that are qualified to be in the kingdom of God at the celestial level and even the highest level of the celestial kingdom if we choose to live in his way and follow his path because he does have authority over me. He has a claim on me because I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I have an obligation to deity to fulfill the measure of my creation he has created me with that potential and if I want to honor him I will fulfill it and magnify it by doing life in his way now this is my comment here that's the end of the part of the article that I'm gonna read I know it's long but I hope you loved it because I think it's amazing in helping us to articulate what is going wrong and it is this shift I mean, honestly, it is a cultural Marxism that has been tried time and time again. And even before Karl Marx, it was the same thing. It was an anti-Christ dogma that rejected savior theology in in the place of it, put this individualistic idea. You can do whatever you want and get away with it. So I'm just going to suggest that it doesn't really help to tell our kids and our youth that they are wonderful the way they are. You know, I've, I've winced every time I've heard that when, you know, and again, not to, to be too negative or critical. That's not my intention here. But, you know, you observe how the kids dress when they come to church or when you see them in the store or on the street or whatever in school. And, you know, when if they're not conforming to the standards that have been taught, whether or not they are printed in a handbook somewhere, but they are taught that we should honor our bodies, we should be modest, we should not draw attention to ourselves or to our the parts of our body, that we should, you know, not be overtly sexual or seductive, that we should Keep clean thoughts in our in our media, in our language, in our you know all of that stuff. So you see that some of the the non compliance that that may be evident in some of the people that we know or the youth that we know. And yet it doesn't seem to matter because the leaders get up in the in the pulpit and they say, "Oh, our youth are so wonderful." Don't get me wrong; I'm not suggesting they get up there and say our youth are terrible, but I am suggesting that we say this is the way to be acceptable to God, and we are grateful when our youth choose obedience we are grateful when they humble themselves to become a peculiar people and to make what we consider these minor sacrifices i mean maybe they seem major when we're young or at any stage of our lives they can seem major but really they are giving up something that is worldly and not good for us in order to have something that exalts us so we take something of lesser value and put it on the altar and get something of such greater value that we wonder why we didn't do it before And our people don't seem to be getting that. And sometimes it's especially our youth, but it's all of us that can fall into that trap. And sadly, sometimes when the kids come and rebel, or they say that like, I'm transgender now, or I'm lesbian or gay or, you know, homosexual, whatever, that the parents start to advocate for it because they don't dare tell them no. And I talked about that in the Daniel stuff, that we become so permissive that we don't even want to stop our kids or say no or to tell them this isn't the right way. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have knockdown, drag out battles with our youth. That's not going to convert them. I am saying that we need to teach truth. And yes, we have a responsibility as inspired because every child is different. And as they get older and when they have been perhaps too influenced by the world, that we need to do our best to persuade. And the one who knows best how to do that is God. So we as parents can humble ourselves, we can get on our knees, and we can ask the Lord for how to get through to you know, Mary or Tanner or John or whomever, you know, that we can, we can say, here's my child, and, and they're rejecting the standards of the, of the church as taught by the prophets. Can you help me as a parent understand how to best give them an opportunity and an invitation to understand Savior theology, the doctrine of Christ? the hierarchy that exists between God and his superiority and us, his creations. And he wishes to lift us to his level, but there is only one way to do that, which is by making and keeping sacred covenants and choosing the path to a higher, holier way. I'm not suggesting we tell them they're evil. I just said don't tell them that they're always wonderful. But be realistic about feedback, not in a negative sense, but in an invitational sense that like this is the path and this is the way that we can become who we are meant to be. And I hear this a lot, a lot of parents saying that I don't want to shame my children and we're careful not to do that. But honestly, I think we've gone too far there too, in some cases, because in our effort to avoid shaming our kids, sometimes we have contributed to their loss of humility. Again, it sort of elevates the individual if we're not careful. And they start to think that they're good enough the way they are. And again, not to say that they are evil or horrible, but the potential is real. They are children of God, with that divine spark that allows us to, to even hope for exaltation in the kingdom of God, where we can become joint heirs with Christ. I mean, what an unlimited potential is that? But we have to approach it with humility, not thinking that like, well, I'm, I'm fine the way I am. And sometimes to avoid shaming them, we have gone so far as to kind of rob them of humility. So there's a sweet spot in there. Again, prayerfully, we can seek how to best communicate that to our children. And it's in the scriptures and in the words of the prophets. So there's a lot of resource available that God can guide us to, the Spirit can guide us to, and that we can study and keep our eyes open for as well, of course. I'm going to quote from Elder Holland now in a wonderful speech that he gave. I've quoted this before on occasion This is a speech called The Costs and Blessings of Discipleship from April 2014. Wonderful speech. But here we hear the truth from our prophets. Sadly enough, my young friends, it is characteristic of our age that if people want any gods at all, they want them to be gods who do not demand much. Comfortable gods. You see, that's what this other gentleman was talking about when he talked about expressive individualism and that we don't want anything to interfere with our natural man desires. We don't want to acknowledge the authority of a God who has the right to command his children that this is the path, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one way to to become acceptable, to choose glory and to become a Zion people. Going on with Elder Holland, we want gods who do not demand much. Comfortable gods, smooth gods, who not only don't rock the boat, but don't even row it because there is no power in that. Remember Joseph Smith saying that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things. And what is that? The sacrifice of our natural man self, the sacrifice of our agency, the only gift we have to give God. We've talked about this before. Remember, God gave us agency, no strings attached. We can choose. And giving that back to God is the only gift we can really give our Father in heaven, in gratitude for all he has given us and the potential that exists within us because we are his children. Giving our agency back, our will back, not I'm going to do it my way, but I'm going to do it his way. Forget this do you, it's do God, do Jesus, do what creates that chance to magnify our potential, fulfill the essence of who we are meant to be as his children. Wow, I keep interrupting this wonderful statement, so let me go on. Gods who not only don't rock the boat, but don't even row it. Gods who pat us on the head, make us giggle, then tell us to run along and pick miracles. And that's what the world is saying. Oh, everyone's going to heaven. Don't worry. He doesn't demand anything. No matter what you do, no matter if you break the laws of chastity or you deny the difference between men and women and you deny the divine, you know, gender that is within us eternally, pre-earth life, mortal life and eternity, that we are sons and daughters of God. No. Forget all that. Do it your way. And God will just pat you on the head and tell you to go pick miracles because you're all going to heaven. Talk about man creating God in his own image, says Elder Holland. Sometimes, and this seems the greatest irony of all, these folks invoke the name of Jesus as one who was this kind of comfortable God. And you hear that all the time. Oh, Jesus loves everybody. I know Jesus loves me no matter what I do and whoever I choose to be. Really, questions Elder Holland, he who said not only should we not break commandments, but we should not even think about breaking them. And if we do think about breaking them, we have already broken them in our heart. Does that sound like comfortable doctrine? Easy on the air and popular down at the village love inn? And what of those who just want to look at sin or touch it from a distance? Jesus said with a flash, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. I came not to bring peace but a sword. He warned those who thought he spoke only soothing platitudes. No wonder that sermon after sermon the local communities prayed him to depart out of their coasts. No wonder miracle after miracle his power was attributed not to God but to the devil. It is obvious that the bumper sticker question, what would Jesus do, will not always bring a popular response if we truly understand Jesus, right? Elder Holland continues, at the zenith of his mortal ministry, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, to make certain they understood exactly what kind of love that was. He said, if ye love me, keep my commandments, and whosoever shall break one of the least commandments, and shall teach men so to do, he shall be the least in the kingdom of heaven. That is so powerful. And again, this is an area where Satan has made such great inroads in our society and our Western beliefs that love means tolerance and indulgence and having no standards. And that people who say that, like our prophets, who say, you know, that, no, let's go back to the family proclamation. God created men and women, and that these are divinely appointed gender roles, and that marriage is between a man and a woman, that now that's hate speech. And people have... Again, turned it upside down, have called good evil and evil good. And we are in the thick of all that. Now, you know what I was thinking of as I read some of this stuff, that we teach our children this from the beginning. Look at the song, I am a child of God. It came into my mind as I was reading some of this stuff. I am a child of God. You see how that establishes a hierarchy right away? Father, child, a parent who created us that we are obliged to for all that he has already given us. I am a child of God and he has sent me here. There is a purpose to that. I am his child. I should find out what that is and do his will. He has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. Some gratitude there, obligation. He has given me these great gifts already because he loves me. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me. Help me find the way, the way, not my way, the way. Teach me all that I must do. That's change. That's repentance. That's conforming my will to his, not his will to mine, not changing the standards, not negotiating them. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. To overcome our fallen state, to be saved. It's not liberation theology where I can complain that somebody is asking me to be other than my natural man self and they have no right to do it. That's kind of the attitude that we get so much from people these days. You don't have a right to ask me to do that. I can do my own way. I can still be religious. I can still be spiritual, but I'm going to do it in my way. Not in the way that has been ordained from the beginning of, from forever. From the foundations of all eternity that cannot be changed, that cannot be abrogated because of universal law, that if we want to fulfill the potential that is ours, and to receive the gifts that God wants to give us, we must do it in His way, not our version of His way. Right there in I am a child of God. It's right there. We teach this from the beginning, but then we sort of lose it along the way in a world that preaches liberation theology. Remember that President Sister Nelson gave that Fireside for Youth a few months ago. And what did President Nelson talk about? Who are we? A child of God. Again, there's a hierarchy there a parent and a child. A child of the covenant. The covenant has a set of requirements that if we love God, we will be obedient to those commandments. If we want to become what we have the potential for being, we will obey, we will conform, we will comply to the covenant. Not because we are oppressed, because we willingly and of our own choice, because of our agency, we return that agency to Christ and we say, and to God the Father, and we say, Not my will, but thine. I will comply with thy way in order to be conformed to the image of your son. And the third thing that President Nelson said, child of God, child of the covenant, disciple of Christ. Again, discipleship. That means following our leader, following our Savior. That is the doctrine of Christ, that we have faith in him. And what is that part of that faith? Is believing that he is superior to us. That he can lift us to his level, but only on the terms that he has set. Non-negotiable terms, because this is the only way that universal law will allow us to become what we have the potential to become by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, of the covenant. And as disciples of Christ, we relinquish that expressive individualism. How quickly can we put it on the altar and humble ourselves? to receive the doctrine of Christ and participate in it to be raised to the level of his son as joint heirs. Amazing stuff, brothers and sisters. We can do it and we can teach it to our children, but we've got to be intentional and open and unapologetic. We are not ashamed of the doctrine of Christ or of his gospel or of his way. We testify of it. We exemplify it, hopefully, to our children and invite them prayerfully asking God who knows them better than we do, how to work with them. This isn't about knock down, drag out confrontation. Although sometimes parents could be firmer, and it depends on the circumstance. So that's not a blanket statement that everybody needs to be tougher. But in our permissive parenting world, some parents do need to be firmer. And some, not so much. Some may need to persuade in a different way, and the Lord will help us Find that way if we prayerfully go to him and say, I really want to help this child understand. I want to give them a chance to understand the doctrine of Christ and to understand the deceptions of Satan, which are so rampant in our day. Let's do it. Let's choose glory. Let's build Zion. That is our birthright. Thanks as ever to all of those of you who have gone to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash choosing glory to subscribe that is supporting this podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.